Welcome to the Shaco Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Today's episode is brought to you by Bear Mattresses. Each Bear Mattress is made with salient technology, clinically proven to promote more restful sleep, aid in quicker recovery, and help you wake up with more energy. To learn more, visit bearmattress.com. September is in full swing. Although there are technically still a couple weeks left of summer, the days are getting shorter, kids are back in school, and the fall racing season is imminent. Many of us are logging high mileage and ramping up training intensity, and this means that the struggle to feel rested and recovered is real. This week on the podcast, I sit down with sleep science researcher, Dr. Amy Bender. We talk about why sleep is the cheapest and most reliable training and recovery tool out there, although sometimes it can be the most difficult to get. Dr. Bender dives into the science behind sleep and offers a plethora of suggestions on how to optimize this valuable tool. To skip ahead to this conversation, scroll to the 12-minute mark in this episode. But first, Canadian running staff writer Maddie Kelly and I bring you all the results and excitement from the track, roads, and trails. We sat down together yesterday to watch the Brussels Diamond League final and to make predictions on how fast Gabriella Debuse Stafford would run en route to her seventh Canadian record. This is the rundown. Should we do our Gabriella debut Stafford predictions while we're oh, yeah. watching? What do you think she's going to run, Maddie? I think that she is going to run at minimum 10 seconds faster than her Canadian record. I think she could go up to 15 seconds faster. All right. It just depends on how she's feeling. So are you are you gonna bite the bullet and say it's gonna be it's gonna be a one four three and then some number or a one four four and then some number? You know what? I today feels like a good day. I'm going one four three. All right. I'm going one four three, which would make it probably in the realm of 15 seconds faster. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking for a 1430 something for Gabriella. And also, like, just for a little perspective, our old Canadian record was 1457. Right. So she, like, already obliterated the record, and then she would be, for the second time in one season, obliterating her new record. Right. Which I think she's possible of, and I think she thinks she's possible of it because she told me, so... Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, Ooh, I like the drummers. Yeah. I know, they've got the drummers, they've got Smurfs. The Brussels DL is where it's at. So, we literally just finished watching the final Diamond League final. The final of the finals. If you're not a Gabriella Stafford fan, you need to be. Because she set seven Canadian records in nine months. That's just ridiculous. We're getting near a record a month. Yeah. A monthly Canadian record. I've never personally been on the monthly Canadian record plan, but if someone could tell me where to sign up, that sounds yeah fantastic. It, I think it starts in Scotland, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Gabriella ran. We well, we had our little prediction ahead of time. It was a weird race. She ran the five thousand at the Brussels Diamond League, and her old Canadian record in her first ever crack at the distance outdoors 
was 1451. Mm-hmm. You thought she was going to run 1430 something. Yes. I fully believe that she's capable of that. However, yes. the race was really bizarre. Yeah. And she got stuck in no man's land for a while. Yeah. And anyway, she came away with a pretty nice, it wasn't a 1430, but it was a 1444. Rough way to do it. Yeah. Still a very impressive result. Still seven seconds faster than the Canadian record she set at the beginning of the summer. Yeah, pretty outrageous. Pretty outrageous. Good job, Gabriella. Great job. We are so excited to watch you run at Worlds. And we can actually, like, there's no more track. It's just Worlds now. Like, there's nothing else. I know. This it's is the track coming. season that never ends. Like, I love track, and this feels like the track season that never ends. Yep. <laughs> It is, but that's okay because people are in great form. This Brussels Diamond League was so exciting, not just because Gabriella ran so well, but we had Crystal Emanuel come seventh in the hundred, looking really strong. We mm-hmm. had both Aaron Brown and Andre de Grasse in the 200. Mm-hmm. They came third and fourth, mm-hmm. third for de Grasse mm-hmm. in the new season's best of 19.87. Great. Andre's, I think, really coming into his own just in time for hopefully a very big world's performance because he looked really good today. He did. He looked actually, he and Aaron both looked fantastic. They both looked fantastic. Aaron looked really, really strong. Very smooth. So good job, men. We had Alicia Newman come third in the pole vault mm-hmm. with another 4.77. Mm-hmm. She almost cleared 4.83, which would have been one centimeter higher than she's ever vaulted before. But she is on a crazy streak of her own. Talk about world rec- or Canadian records. She has set a bunch of them this season. And then I feel bad because we kind of forgot about it because it's not an actual diamond event. But Sage Watson just killed it. In the 400 meter hurdles. Dominated. Huge win in five, 55.58 on a really like cold, nasty, rainy day. Mm-hmm. Super gross. Yeah. Did not look fun, but she looked fantastic. So good job, everyone good at job. the Diamond League. Diamond League homies. I think, though, the, the real MVPs are the Smurfs. Oh, yeah. The Smurfs are great. So there's like. They're always smiling. Yeah, they are. <laughs> It's amazing how they never stop smiling. They're relentlessly positive. Yeah. Yeah, there was a Smurf race to kick off this event, and um, that was really the only reason I tuned in. I think that's the only way I ever get into the Diamond League, (laughs) is if I offer to be a Smurf. (laughs) Please let me know how that goes. That sounds like a really good life goal. Mm -hmm. I condone your decision I don't know if it's a goal so much as um, a consolation, but... (laughs) Well, someday you'll be in a Diamond League, most likely because you'll be competing in it, but as a human and not a Smurf. But this is a nice backup plan. Yeah, worst, it's, I, I'll call it my plan B. <laughs> Moving on to the roads. Oh, Allie Dixon. Man, oh man, this chick is fast. Oh yeah, yeah, new, new world record? New world record. Yeah. In the 50K, in her first ever ultra marathon. All true. So exciting. So exciting. She's got a good, like, she's had a really good marathon career. She's got the results to back it. It totally makes sense. But, like, for your first attempt at a distance to set a world record. It's amazing. Also, get me on that plan. Right. I want to be on the seven national records in nine months plan. I also want to be on the first crack at it world record plan. And if none of this comes true, I'll be a Smurf. Okay. I, you know, you just really set your life up. I got big goals. Yeah. Good for you. 
Um, so these 50K... It was the World Championships. Yes, the 50K World Championships were held last Sunday in Brasov, Romania. And Ali Dixon, who we said is from Great Britain, broke that 50K world record. She ran three hours, seven minutes, and 20 seconds. And like you said, she is a really good marathoner. Mm-hmm. She ran the marathon at the 2017 World Championships and ran a 229. Just mm-hmm. smoking. Smoking. So, but apparently the longer she goes, the better she gets. Love that. Maybe she'll move to the trails. Maybe. Tackle that. Allie Dixon, if you're listening, because I'm sure you are, we highly suggest that you get in touch with our trail editor, Tori Schultz. She'll point you in the right direction. Yeah, you guys can go run some trails together. Oh, and. Yes, Kate. The Boston Marathon registration opens on Monday for the 2020 Boston Marathon. If you've run 20 minutes faster than the already incredibly fast age group standards. And if you haven't. So the way this works is on Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern time. If you have surpassed your qualifying standard for your age and gender by 20 minutes or more. So it's kind of silly that they even have these age and gender cutoffs because they're not really entry standards. It's like the slowest you can possibly run and still get in almost. Yeah, yeah. Because if you have run 20 minutes or faster than that standard, you get to register on Monday. On Wednesday, if you've run 10 minutes or faster, you get to register. Mm -hmm. On Friday, if you've run five minutes or faster, you get to register. And then registration closes one week from Saturday. One week from Saturday. So folks, know your time, know your cutoff, know your registration date. Yes, and get on it because that is not something you want to mess up. Okay, moving on to the trails. We had UTMB, one of the biggest trail races in the world, in Europe especially, covered like the Tour de France. Huge deal. People love it. So it stands for... Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Did yes. you take French in school? I did. Actually, we fun. all did. We're Canadians. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, Ailsa McDonald, no stranger to tough races. She has six course records and two overall wins in the trail and ultra running world already. She's from Alberta, and she has already established herself as one of the best in the world. And her performance at the UTMB CCC, because there are a whole bunch of different events that take place. What did you call it? A festival? It's like, like there's, a- yeah, there's like a bunch of races. It takes place over six days and it's gorgeous. And they have various race lengths, terrain types, and you can just kind of go and do uh, whatever placed your strengths in the French Alps, question mark, the Pyrenees, right? It is in the Alps, yep. Mm-hmm. And... Um, her 101k race had 6,100 meters of elevation gain, and she finished sixth in an incredibly deep field amongst some of the best mountain runners in the world. Very impressive. Way to go, Elsa. And I also really like your name. Yeah, I think it's a very pretty name. Elsa. And across the board, we had a lot of really strong Canadian performances in all of the different events. And you can look up those results because there's so many that we're not going to be able to get through them all, but you dozens. can- Dozens, yes. Head over to the trail running tab on runningmagazine.ca. Tori Schultz has compiled a fantastic list. Go look for your name, your friends' names. Go look for strangers' names so that you can cheer them on next time you see them out on the trails. So this has been your rundown for this week. I'm Maddie. 
I'm Kate, and we'll bring you more action next week. Dr. Amy Bender is a senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center and an adjunct assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Calgary. She has developed sleep optimization strategies for numerous Canadian Olympic and professional teams and is now using her expertise to understand how sleep interventions can improve mental health outcomes. I reached Dr. Bender at her home in Calgary. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And we're going to be talking about the importance of sleep, which is something that I think gets sort of hammered into all of us all the time, where none of us are unaware of the importance of sleep. But of course, it's one thing to know it and another thing to be able to actually put it into practice on a regular basis, developing good sleep habits. So I'll just start by asking you, you know, again, on that note, we all know that sleep is so important. We know that it's crucial. We know that it's important for recovery and for performance. But why specifically is it such an important component of performance and recovery for runners? It is. It's so important. It's it's one of the pillars of health, you know, just as important as nutrition and exercise. When we talk specifically about runners, uh, there has been some research showing that sleep deprivation can uh, affect running performance. And so they find that when you're sleep deprived, you don't actually run as far. And there wasn't really anything to do with the cardiorespiratory function or thermoregulation. It more had to do with the perception of effort. So you perceive the workouts to be more difficult. You don't run as far as a result of that and um, can have definitely an impact on endurance performance. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show before. We actually had an episode last month um, speaking with a nutritionist about running in the heat and how that perceived versus actual effort comes into play so importantly there as well, how your body might not actually be working harder, it just feels like it is. And it sounds like that's very similar when you have sleep restriction or sleep deprivation. Deprivation, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, Similar type of thing. It's more fatigue related to the mind and not necessarily the muscle. Although, I mean, I know this this certainly needs to be explored more. So on that note, we know that sleep deprivation or restriction has that negative impact um, in the way that you feel when you're running. So even though it may not necessarily have a cardiovascular uh, influence, it feels like it does or, or a muscular influence. But in terms of the impact on the mind, how does the effect on cognitive performance carry over into physical performance? Maybe we're talking more on race day here. Well, I think, number one, more research needs to be done in this area. But what we find with cognitive performance, um, reaction time can be impacted, which maybe isn't such a huge deal for a marathon runner. But potentially, if you're on an uneven surface, let's say, you know, reaction time may be important in that situation. Um, It can improve split-second decision-making, similar idea, you know, with sleep deprivation, performance is similar to being legally drunk. 
So I, I run mainly mid-distance. I run the 1500 and the 5000 meter on the track, but I also do a lot of longer training in my base season. So I'll go out for a 25K long run and I'll be trying to hit very specific splits on that long run. And I know for myself that if I have had maybe not just one night, but you know, a really tough week. And it's been, I've, I haven't had enough sleep or my sleep quality hasn't been good. Mentally, I find that when I'm on that long run, it's hard for me to stay in the moment. It's hard for me to stay sort of committed to that pace. And it's hard for me to um, maybe tap into some of that deeper cognitive, like push that I'm able to get when I am well rested. Is there anything that you want to speak to about that? Absolutely. Um, Sleep deprivation and sleep restriction. So I guess I should probably clarify kind of those terms to begin with. Sleep deprivation is a situation where you might pull an all-nighter. And so it's pretty rare when we're talking to athletes prior to an event. You know, they are getting sleep leading into that event. Um, The more likely scenario would be sleep restriction. So they're getting a little bit of sleep, but not necessarily the full amount of sleep that they typically get. So when we're talking about um, sleep restriction, this can add up across weeks and months, that sleep debt that's, that's accruing. And you're right. I mean, we find that focus is much more difficult in that type of sleep restriction scenario. So it may be your mind may wander a bit more. You may not be in the moment as much as when you get that proper amount of sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. And that was a really uh, something you said earlier really struck me as well, that it's sort of the the comparison of being legally drunk. <laughs> and I think most of us can sort of relate to that on some level of both the physical and the cognitive impairment that comes with that. And like you said, reaction time and focus are all severely uh, limited when that happens. So that's that's a really stunning comparison. Absolutely. Yes. The research shows that at about 19 hours without sleep, performance on a reaction time test is similar to being legally drunk. Um, Another thing we didn't touch on was mood. So when you're sleep deprived, when you've not gotten as much sleep as you normally do, mood is actually the number one factor that is impacted by sleep restriction. And so you may not feel like doing that full workout. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a possibility and we've all probably been there. Absolutely. Yes, I know. I certainly have. <laughs> well, and, and it's tough because I think most of us who are committed to our racing goals, whatever level that may be at, we take our, our health pretty seriously. We take our training pretty seriously. So we would, you know, most of us would never fathom going out for a hard night of drinking when we know that we have, you know, a key workout the next morning. And yet it sounds like in, in sort of a roundabout way, we're almost doing similar things to our body by not getting enough sleep or not getting good enough quality sleep. Mm-hmm. And one thing we didn't talk about was the impact of, of sleep deprivation and restriction on nutrition. So you could be eating perfectly, um, but when you're sleep deprived, hormone function changes. So you have... Um, more uh, ghrelin release, which is that hungry hormone. So you may feel more hungry after sleep deprivation and sleep restriction. 
you actually have less leptin release, so you feel less full. And what we typically find is almost a 500 calorie increase after about five hours of uh, sleep restriction. So it can be much more difficult to stay on track for your nutrition as well. Wow. Yeah, that's that's another really staggering uh, fact. So it sounds like we could be doing everything else right, but we're almost undoing all of those benefits if we're not sleeping enough. Absolutely. Wow. So um, we've talked a lot about, or, or I've sort of talked a lot about getting enough sleep. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship or the difference between sleep, sleep quantity versus sleep quality? Because I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, I, my head was on the pillow for seven and a half hours last night, but they wake up feeling really tired. And so could you talk a little bit about that relationship? Absolutely. And we didn't really touch on the amount of sleep that people should be getting. So sleep quantity is the amount of sleep you should try and aim to get per night. And for a healthy adult, that ranges between seven and nine hours of sleep. But you're right, you know, if there's potentially an underlying sleep disorder going on, nine hours of sleep, may you still may wake up feeling really tired and exhausted. So we also have to make sure that the quality is good as well. And the National Sleep Foundation actually came up with a great definition for sleep quality. And there's four key components there. So sleeping at least 85% of the time while you're in bed. So if you're in bed for eight hours, you know, seven and a half hours that you're actually sleeping would constitute as um, 85% of the time. And then making sure that you're able to fall asleep within 30 minutes or less, any more than that. And if this is occurring multiple times per week and it's been lasting, you know, three months, there may be some insomnia going on. And then as well as waking up no more than once per night. So if you wake up once during the night to get up to use the bathroom, not a big deal. Um, just want to make sure it's not multiple times and then potentially not being awake for more than 20 minutes after you initially fall asleep is kind of what they define as good sleep quality. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there's lots of people that make this effort or this commitment to, all right, I understand that I need to prioritize my rest and recovery and I lead a really busy life. And, you know, I've got the kids who have to get to soccer practice and I've worked hard at my job all day and I got up early to get my run in. And, and they're really making the effort to get that good quality and enough sleep, but they're just not able to do it. What are some of the tips or tools for achieving longer and deeper sleep? Well, I think if there's an underlying sleep disorder going on, so I mentioned insomnia, that the person should really get it checked out by a sleep professional. And so not trying to solve that problem on your own. What we find is that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is the gold standard treatment. So that can be seeing a sleep professional initially to maybe diagnose for insomnia, but then it can, there are a lot of online programs that can be done. There are books that you can read that can help with that. You know, if possible, seeing a behavioral sleep medicine specialist would be ideal, but I know a lot of people maybe not have access to that. 
So there are ways that people can get help for those sleep disorders. Another potentially common sleep disorder would be sleep apnea. So sleep disordered breathing, maybe um, snoring is related to that. So 50% of snorers actually have sleep apnea where you stop breathing during the middle of the night. Wow. Yes. And so if you're snoring, if you're feeling tired during the day, it's probably a sign that you need to get that checked out. And if your partner witnesses you stop breathing during the middle of the night, that would be a situation where we would want to get that looked at. If it's more of a priority problem, so, you know, sleep kind of gets cut short because we get busier and busier. We want to fit all of these things in, you know, so sleep gets kind of pushed to the wayside. I think having accountability related to that, so potentially setting a goal for yourself to be in bed by a certain time, maybe printing off a chart and checking off when you actually complete that goal. I, I actually recently did this myself with a number of different health items. So, you know, no alcohol, check mark, get my cardio in, check mark. And then one of my other goals is to be in bed by 10 p.m. You know, so that has actually really helped me. So trying to potentially get a partner to keep you accountable and then also just printing it off and checking it off when you um, meet that goal. Right. Yeah, of course, that accountability piece when it's something right in front of you is so so much more beneficial than just having the intent, right? <laughs> you, you mentioned being in bed by 10 o'clock. Does the timing of your number of hours of sleep make a difference? So if people are night owls, but maybe they don't have to be up first thing in the morning, let's say they don't start work until noon, is it more beneficial to sleep earlier in the night or is it the same, you know, is, is, is eight hours, eight hours, whether it's from 1am till 9am or, you know, 10pm till 6am? That's a great question. The timing of our sleep is dependent on melatonin release. So ideally you want to time your sleep when your melatonin is being released. So melatonin is that sleepiness hormone that starts to get released around you know, darkness, sunset, typically two hours before your, your usual bedtime. And so it's really important for those night owls to try and align their sleep with that schedule. So if I'm a night owl and I try going to bed at 10 p.m. and I lie there awake for an hour, it, that's not a good thing. So we want to actually try and go to bed later if we're more of that night owl go to bed when you feel sleepy, and hopefully you have a flexible enough schedule that you can modify that potentially by sleeping in a little bit later. And then for those early birds, similar idea, it's likely that their melatonin is getting released earlier, so they want to time their sleep period at an earlier time. And so the time on the clock is not it's not suited for everyone. So 10 p.m. Isn't, isn't the time that everyone should go to bed. It really depends on your chronotype and whether or not you're more of that morning type, which is about 15% of the population, or that evening type, which is a similar percentage, and then the rest of us kind of fall in between. So 
for those who, let's say they do have early mornings, but they've perhaps gotten in, you know, this unfortunate habit of staying up late for whatever reason, and they're trying to break that so that they can go to sleep a little earlier so that they're able to get that, you know, seven to nine hours before they have to get up when the alarm goes off at 6am. What are some of the things that they can do themselves to help incite some of that relaxation, let's say, so they can get to bed a little earlier. So can you speak to any of those things that folks can sort of use uh, pick and choose, which might make the most sense for them? Absolutely. So there are many things that people can do. And I think this also relates to if you're a night owl, um, your natural tendency is to go to bed later, but there are things that you can do to help shift your your sleep time to an earlier time, shift your melatonin to an earlier time. Number one would be trying to get lots of light in the morning. So that helps set your circadian rhythm to an earlier time. So getting that run outside in the morning, hopefully during daylight hours is gonna be really beneficial. Then, you know, limiting your caffeine so you don't want to drink caffeine too late in the afternoon. I generally say no caffeine afternoon, no coffee, I would say. You could maybe have a green tea if you're really struggling. And then blocking light at night. So what happens is if we're looking at our electronic devices where we have bright lights on when our melatonin is supposed to start getting released, it's going to actually alert us. So it's going to send a signal to our brain to wake up and it's going to eliminate some of that melatonin. So trying to potentially dim the lights at night, two hours before bedtime, putting away the electronic devices because electronic devices have that blue light that we're most sensitive to is going to be an important aspect to control the melatonin release. People could potentially get blue blocking glasses. So there are glasses available that are are fairly inexpensive that can block out 99% of blue light. And so if, for example, you have to work late at night on your computer, your laptop, for me, I would recommend wearing those blue blocking glasses would be important. Potentially melatonin for us, we find frequent use of melatonin for us is a red flag that there may be something going on there. But I think in the situation of an extreme night owl, melatonin two hours before the time they would like to go to bed um, has been shown to be effective. Those would be kind of the main things You talked about a bedtime routine, and this is really, really important for people to have a period of time, maybe about an hour before bedtime, to start doing relaxing activities. So I get athletes telling me, well, okay, I gotta put away the electronic devices. What am I supposed to do during this time? Um, (laughs) So, A hot shower or bath about an hour before bedtime has been shown to decrease the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep. So that can be a useful useful tool. Potentially doing a to-do list. One study showed, and this was only five minutes before bedtime, they had people write a to-do list versus those who just wrote about their day. And they found that those who wrote the to-do list fell asleep much quicker than those who were just journaling about their day. And they think that that was due to 
just offloading thoughts off of their mind to then relax the mind and the body to actually sleep. Reading a paper book. So reading a paper book can, depending on the topic of the book, can activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So that relaxation system. So that has been shown to be really useful. I think people need to find kind of what works for them, what relaxes them. Um, it's really kind of an individual individual routine that people need to develop. But you can't just flip a switch five minutes before your bedtime and expect to be able to fall asleep quickly and get the good quality sleep that you're seeking for. You need some time to unwind before bed. Right. All great suggestions. So this is a question that I've heard from my fellow runners quite a bit. Can you catch up on or bank sleep? So, you know, again, we have, let's say you're, you know, you've got kids or you've just got a really busy lifestyle and you say, all right, I know that for these next four days, things at work are crazy or my, you know, I just have to get through this block of really intense training. And then my weekend is pretty free. So I'm going to get 10 hours of sleep on, you know, Friday and Saturday night. Does that, is there any truth to that or does that just not work? I believe that it works. So now there is, if someone's getting, let's say six hours during the work week, and then they're extending their sleep by more than two hours on the weekend, that can cause a lot of health problems actually. So it's called social jet lag. When your free schedule, so your weekends, differ by more than two hours from your weeknights when you have to be up for work. So I wouldn't alter the schedule by more than two hours if possible. The reason for that is if I sleep in till, let's say I normally get up at 6 a.m. on the weeknights, and then I'm sleeping in till 9 a.m. on the weekends, you're going to start pushing your sleep back more and more. In an extreme example, I mean, when we were teenagers, you know, you sleep in till noon. Well, you're not tired until 2 a.m. that night. And so what happens on Sunday night when you got to be up for work, you know, the next day and you're not tired at your usual bedtime? So you want to be careful um, by not extending sleep too much on the weekends. But absolutely, banking sleep has been shown in sleep deprivation studies to help with performance. So there's been studies to show that those getting more sleep leading into a sleep deprivation period perform better than those who just get their normal amount of sleep. There are, in particular, there's a new book out, Matthew Walker, called Why We Sleep. And he doesn't believe that you can catch up on sleep. So there is a bit of a bit of debate amongst sleep scientists whether or not you can catch up on lost sleep. But when I look at the sleep extension and the banking sleep studies, they show that they perform better, you know, during that sleep deprivation period. So this has been shown in athletes, and so it can definitely be applied for people leading into that marathon, that half marathon, that important competition to get more sleep at least one week before, potentially two weeks before that important competition. And then if you get a poor night's sleep the night before, 
it's not gonna impact you as much and you're just gonna perform better during that important event. So it sounds like perhaps, you know, ideally you would just get consistently good quality, good duration of sleep. But if you have to go through periods of sleep restriction, there is some merit to doing that banking. Absolutely. And I think it can be in the form of napping as well. So we haven't really talked about napping, but if you're typically not a napper, any amount of extra sleep that you can get, it doesn't necessarily have to be nighttime sleep. It can be sleeping during the day as well is going to help um, help you bank that sleep. And is there a certain amount of time that someone should aim for for a midday nap? Let's say, you know, you have the luxury of being able to go home for an hour in the middle of the day or an hour and a half, or let's say, yeah, you're just your schedule accommodates that somehow. Is there sort of a a gold standard for how long a nap should be? Ideally, uh, in most situations, if you don't have a lot of time, you want to keep it under 30 minutes. And so the reason for that is that you're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep where you're waking up feeling groggy and don't have any idea where you are. So keeping it under that 30 minute mark, then you're just kind of in those light stages of sleep. But if you do have a, a greater opportunity, potentially a 90 minute nap will get you into all the stages of sleep. So the light sleep, the deep sleep, and then the REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep, which is that dreaming state. And ideally, you'd want to wake up naturally without an alarm, which many people are kind of anxious about. So I say set an emergency alarm, but try and wake up naturally after a complete sleep cycle. And 90 minutes is kind of is definitely a guesstimate. It depends on a lot of things. And you can't necessarily predict how long a sleep cycle is going to be. And that's why I say try and wake up naturally after around that 90 minute mark. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I used to I used to hate napping, and I think it was fairly closely tied to anxiety. But I, I'm a professional runner myself, and I found that naps have become my absolute best friend. And now I can like on days when I have a hard workout in the morning, if I don't have that midday nap, I suffer a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it can take practice too. Um, and I, I would also say that even if you're laying there and you do not fall asleep, that there are still benefits to that. So you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system, hopefully um, that you're not too anxious, but you're, you're laying there quietly with your eyes closed. There, there are definitely benefits for that as well. Some people may struggle with falling asleep. So I think some of the techniques that we use in the bedtime routine, so for example, the to-do list might be useful for someone trying to take a midday nap, trying to do, you know, offload those thoughts off their mind so that they can focus on sleep during the middle of the day. And then there are a few other techniques. So there's some breathing techniques that you can try. I like the four, seven, eight breathing. So that's where you breathe in for four seconds, you hold your breath for seven, and then you breathe out for eight, and you repeat that four times. And that has been shown to activate the relaxation system, help people fall asleep a little bit quicker. Um, Potentially the cognitive shuffle is another favorite of mine. And that's where you think of a word, so bedtime, 
and you think of all, you imagine all the objects you can that start with B, so ball, baby, bus, bag, and then when you can't think of any more objects, you imagine objects that start with E, egg, eagle, and you just go, go down the word, and by the time you get to the end of the word, you will be sound asleep. <laughs> That's great. I'm definitely going to try that. I like that a lot. Um, so you mentioned sleep cycles a moment ago, and everyone's heard of REM and they've heard of different sleep cycles. But of course, it can be hard to know how how much time you're spending in each one of those. Do you recommend the use of any sleep trackers or technological tools that could either track that or help give you a better sense of what type of sleep you're getting? Mm-hmm. Um, the technology isn't quite there yet. And there's actually been shown that people can become more anxious when they're wearing sleep trackers. So it's, it's, I've actually gotten this question a lot where people will come to me and say, my sleep tracker is telling me I'm not getting, you know, I'm getting 10% deep sleep when I should be getting about 20%. And in reality, it's probably the tracker that's wrong versus what actually is occurring during the night. And it could be a sensitivity issue. So I think sleep trackers can be a good thing. It, they may keep you accountable for the amount of sleep that you're getting. But in general, they do a poor job of being able to tell you First of all, how long it's taking you to fall asleep because you could be laying there still and it could count that as being asleep. And then number two, the distribution of stages of sleep that you're getting. So it has a difficult time really accurately gauging those, those two, two different things. And so people need to be aware of that. I don't think you should throw them out altogether, but... I would focus more on maybe the total sleep time that it's telling you that you're getting and to maybe adjust that if it's not where you want to be. Right. Do you see benefit in doing sort of your own non-technological tracking of your sleep? So one of the things that my coaches have recommended that I do because I keep a training log is not just to include how many kilometers I ran that day or what pace I ran, but how I was feeling. And some of that is I write down how many hours of sleep I got. And then I have a system where I just put a little either a fanny face, a neutral face, or a smiley face beside my sleep hours. And that sort of shows how I felt waking up and whether I was rested and what my mood was like. Do you think there's merit to that sort of um, more qualitative tracking? Absolutely. I think that's a great idea for people to potentially, yes, write down generally the amount of sleep that you got. And then also incorporating a quality measure and having the smiley face, that seems like a great idea to be able to potentially link, maybe if you have a run of poor sleep, um, what's going on during that time? Are you really stressed out at work? Um, Could it be a really high training load that's occurring? And to just kind of see general patterns of what's going on and how you could potentially mitigate those problems. 
So on that note, again, we, we sort of spoke at the beginning about how lack of sleep or poor quality sleep can lead to things like um, injury or illness, and they can lead to being thrown off of your nutrition schedule and, and have a lot of these sort of negative effects. What are some of the warning signs that you're underrested that you can look for before you end up with a potential injury or illness? Mm-hmm. Well, I think context is is good here. So we actually did a study in London Marathon Runners a couple of years back, and we're working on publishing it. And over a, it was almost a thousand marathon runners, and we found that about 15% of them had more of that moderate to severe sleep difficulty. So I would say generally it's not very common, at least what we're seeing in marathon runners, to have a sleep problem. Um, But there may be an acute situation where I'm approaching a pattern of poor sleep, what's going on here. So I would say stress reduction is is a big one. So even stress at work, stress at home, those kind of things can certainly impact the quality of your sleep. So taking time out to do yoga, uh, meditation, those kinds of activities could potentially help you in those situations. If you're falling below that seven hour mark continually, that's, that's a sign that there may be an increase for injury risk or illness. And so really, if you have an underlying sleep disorder to get that taken care of, and if it's more of a priority issue to really make sleep a priority to aim for that minimum seven hours. And if you have a higher training load, potentially longer periods of sleep to be able to recover from that, um, the increased activity that you're doing. Those would be a few general tips I would say that you could do in that situation. Okay. So this is very related. It's sort of a follow-up, but a lot of our listeners are, again, very dedicated to their training plan. And, you know, runners tend to be a little bit more type A and don't like missing anything that's on their training schedule. They like getting everything done. But when should you trade a training session for a day of more rest or more hours of sleep versus working through some of that fatigue resistance. So when is it a good idea to say, you know what, I'm going to forego my morning run. I just need more hours of sleep tonight. And maybe that's, I don't know if there's sort of a a general rule here, but is there a certain number of days that you, at which you should cut that off? Like, let's say you've gone six days in a row of getting only five or six hours of sleep. Is it that sixth or seventh day where you should say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to forget the morning run. I'm going to forget running today or my lift or whatever it is. And I'm just going to focus on rest and recovery. Yes. Um, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't actually mention this, but I think, you know, I said people, the recommendation is between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. But I think we need to think about sleep across the entire week. So if you're aiming for, let's say, the goal for you is eight hours, that would be 56 hours across the week. And so if I'm continually getting six, seven, seven, you know, five days in a row, that may be a situation where you forego that morning workout and really take the time to rest and recover or potentially add in a nap when you normally wouldn't 
to try and keep that average amount of weekly sleep up to the goal that you have. Are there any specific resources that you would direct folks to? Is there anything online or any particular literature, um, anywhere that people can sort of find out more information about all of this? Well, I think number one, if people are wondering whether or not they have a sleep problem to begin with, I helped develop the Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire. And this is a questionnaire designed for athletes to look at that sleep quantity, quality, and timing of sleep. So this is available online if you just Google Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire. You can actually go to the Center for Sleep website and they have an online version of the questionnaire that you can fill out and actually get results emailed to you that I helped develop. And so it's just centerforsleep.com and then look for Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire. So that would be a really good resource for people. Thank you to Dr. Bender for her contribution to this episode. We have included a link to that sleep questionnaire that she mentioned on our website. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or any place that you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ShakeOut Podcast. And just a reminder that the marathon issue of Canadian Running Magazine is currently available on newsstands or via the print edition. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll chat again soon. Music